What an amazing testimony. Um, Summit, there are 181 of your members, our Summit Church members, current members, who are right now living on one of our overseas church planning teams, just like uh, the families that you saw there on that video. Last night, we commissioned number 182. Uh, we have uh, asked God um, to allow us over by the 2050, which is the year that I plan to retire from the Summit Church, um, or die, uh, either one. Um, I've asked God to let me preach my own funeral sermon from this platform, crawl into the casket, say hi to Jesus. That's how I plan to go out. Um, but we've asked God by 2050 to let us send out 5,000 um, church planters or pe uh, members of church planting teams um, around the world. And uh, many of them are listening to me right now um, at all of our campuses. Uh, some of them are in our nursery. Um, some of them have yet to be born. And some of them have yet to be reached for Christ in our, um, in our community. And uh, so we have a lot to look forward to and um, a lot of things that we are really excited about. Um, so uh, I hope you just get a little taste of that with that, with that video. Uh, I want to say welcome to all of our campuses at the Summit Church around the Triangle. I also want to say welcome to a special group of friends we have with us from Virginia, a group of college students from, uh, I think it's Spotsboro Baptist Church, or Spotswood, excuse me, Baptist Church, and they are in the room here. They are uh, on a retreat this weekend and honor us by making us a part of that stop. And so uh, I think this is two years in a row, so welcome to you guys as well. Um, I, uh, uh, if you guys can remember Summit Church, you can remember way back into October of last year. Uh, I know that seems like a long time ago, October of last year. Uh, Justin Bieber was just a cute little kid, only committing misdemeanors uh, back then. Queen Latifah was not the Reverend Queen Latifah yet, and uh, Peyton Manning was still a football hero for young boys. Uh, that was way back. And I say that as a Peyton Manning fan, I'm a Peyton Manning fan, but just saying it, you know, telling it like it is. Um, we were also in the midst of a series called Sent, in which we were going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And we took an extended break. I'm not even sure if you remember the fact that we were in that series, because it was so long since we took the break. Well, today, whether you remember it or not, we are jumping back in. So if you have your Bible and you want to take it out and open it or turn it on to Acts chapter 6, we are going to come today to the story of the very first Christian martyr. The very first Christian martyr, and in the story of this man, you are going to see the profile of the ordinary, if I could say that, the profile of the ordinary Christian man. This guy is not an apostle, he's not a church leader, he's just an average guy. But it is because of guys and girls like him that the church grew so quickly. You see, in case you can't remember what happened in Acts 1-5, through by this point the church has become a huge movement. The Jerusalem church at this point is more than 10,000 people big at least. Um, and that's all in one city, Jerusalem, the population of which could not have been more than 40,000 people. We know that from this point, it's going to spread like crazy all around the world. So the question that you have to ask is, why is it growing like this? Kenneth Scott LaTourette, who was a noted history professor at Yale University, said, never in so short a time has any other religious faith or for that matter, any set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. Other movements spread by, by conquest or politics, but that's not true of Christianity. 
They had no congressmen. They didn't have any actors. They didn't have any people of influence. They were a group of, if you will, blue-collar people that changed the world. How and why? The answer, in part, is the profile of the man that you're going to see today. Stephen has one principle that he lives by. That's the man's name, Stephen, that he lives by. One principle that makes him the kind of guy that's going to hold the church together when it's in real danger of fracturing. I'll show you that in a minute. He's one principle that, that, that causes him to help everything keep moving forward when the enemy is pushing with great strength against them. That one principle, I would say, has probably made him a lot of fun to be around. It's a principle that if you've ever met somebody like this, you recognize it immediately in them. That principle I would summarize in one statement, and it's this. He said, it's not about me. He knew from start to finish, you'll see this in his life, it's not really about me. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist, which refers to Jews that come from Greek cultural roots, the Greek word Hellas refers to the geographic region of Greece. So a complaint against these Greek cultural people arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this is a pretty dangerous problem because there's an edge to it, isn't there? It's a racial problem. There's a group of people saying, you're prioritizing this group over here over this group over here because of their cultural ethnicity. You see, I would say there are two problems with this complaint. One, they assign motives that they have no way of knowing. You see where it says, the text says, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. In other words, they assumed that the Hebrews were leaving them out for racial or cultural reasons. Second, they never brought this to the apostles. When the text says a complaint arose, it implies there was this general murmuring and backbiting going on that finally surfaced. There's a lot of conversations happening in small groups that were like, well, you know they don't care about us. And you know that this, they, they, they prefer those people over there. Church, this is a significant threat. Because there is nothing that is used by Satan more effectively in a church than distrust and resentment. Satan's, this is, by the way, Satan's third major attack on the church. Acts 4, Satan attacked it through a persecuting government. In Acts 5, he attacked it through the embezzling hypocrisy of one of its leaders, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. Now in Acts 6, he pulls out his most insidious attack, and that is he attacks it through an inward spirit of grumbling, distrust, and backbiting, and this might be the most serious threat that endangers the church. In fact, this is a tad bit off topic, but you might want to jot this down. A spirit of grumbling and complaining kills more churches than persecution. A spirit of grumbling and complaining kills more churches than persecution does. They survive Acts 4 and 5 just fine. Acts 6 threatens to undo them. Some of you have been from churches where you've seen this happen, have you not? It was not persecution that killed your church. It was a spirit of distrust and backbiting and murmuring, right? Because that's just some of the cultures that we come out of. It reminds me of the story of a, a guy who was, you know, in a shipwreck and marooned on an island for 20 years. When they finally discover this guy they, they, and they rescue him, they, he, they, they, he's built three little huts. And so they ask him, like, what's this first hut right here? He said, well, that's where I live. I built myself a house. He said, well, what's this second hut? He said, well, that's my Baptist church because I'm a Baptist. What's this third building? That's my other Baptist church because we had a split, right? <laughs> Some of you know all too well what it's like to be in a church where 
you saw this kind of distrust and murmuring destroy the church, do you understand that when you speak evil of your brothers and your sisters in Christ, especially when you judge their motives, you are being used by Satan. And I'll tell you something that there's a couple of rules that I live by because I hate the work of Satan so badly. You might think this is naive. You might think it's overreaction, but I think it's appropriate given how our enemy operates. Here are two of my life rules. I try to teach them to our staff team as well. Number one, always give people the benefit of the doubt in the church about their motives when you can. Always give people the benefit of the doubt about their motives when you can. Until you prove to me that your motives are bad, I'm going to assume they're good. Right, so when I read your email and I'm like, I'm assuming their motives are good, so I'm going to answer it as if their motives are good. Number two, my second rule that I, that I and try to teach our team to live by is when you do have a problem, always go straight to the source. Do you know how much disharmony you would avoid if you operated that way? So how did the church leadership respond? Defensively? Oh, no, you didn't. How dare you? Verse two. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, please, the whole gathering. Now, please don't hear that as the apostles saying, this is beneath us. In fact, think about this, the fact that they had to call these extra leaders to do it when the load of widows got larger than it had been, implies that the apostles had been the ones doing it in Acts 1 through 5. Do you see that? They were the ones that were doing it in Acts 1 through 5. That's why they had to call in reinforcements when the load got larger. The, the apostles were doing that because they thought of themselves as servants. They were followers of a man who had washed their feet. So when there were widows that needed to be taken care of in Acts 1 through 5, naturally they assumed that's our job. But now they realize that the load is too heavy and it would consume their time. And they know that the greatest act of service they can provide the church is teaching the word accurately, seeking God's face for the will of God for the church in prayer, and, and, and teaching other people to, to, to teach the word as well. Right? They know that's the greatest act of service they can do, and so they've got to focus their time on that. They're not graduating out of service to some higher level. They're just focusing on the most effective kind of service that they can give. But that means that somebody's got to do this other part of of the church ministry. So they chose Stephen, verse 5, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and a bunch of other guys whose names are really hard to pronounce. By the way, they're all Greek names, which means they chose leaders out of the Greek cultural people. Verse 6, then they set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. What's the result? Verse 7, and the word of God, instead of a church split, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here's a question, why the specific mention of priests? If a great number of people are coming to faith, why single out this one group and comment on them? I have a speculation that I think is accurate. You know whose job it was in the Old Testament to take care of poor widows? Priests. Now you've got an entire nation of people, the church, acting as if they're priests, doing the job that priests do. The priests, the Jewish priests, had been very antagonistic toward Jesus, had they not? They were the ones who led in Jesus' crucifixion. Now their hearts are changed from being antagonizers of Jesus to instead being believers in Jesus. How did they change? 
Was it because of some unbelievable apologetic sermon that Peter got up and preached where he defended the resurrection? No. Their hearts were changed by seeing the church pour out itself in service to the poor around them. That's what changed the hearts of the antagonist. Verse 8, and Stephen, who was one of those guys full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Evidently, Stephen was personally involved in a lot of the conversions of many of these priests. Well, these conversions, as you can imagine, cause an uproar. When the city council gets saved, that causes an uproar. So Stephen gets called before the other religious leaders, which is another group of priests, to answer for this. And in response, he preaches a sermon. That's going to be Acts chapter 7. Uh, Acts chapter 7. And that's the longest sermon, by the way, recorded in the book of Acts, which kind of makes me laugh that the longest sermon in the book of Acts is preached by a layperson, not a, 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 like a professional. Right? Because you always complain about how long I preach. One of you gets up here, it's going to be an hour and a half. I guarantee it. All right? But Stephen preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and in that sermon, Stephen makes basically two major points. Number one, Israel, you've always resisted the prophets that God sent to you. And number two, your law can't save you because A, you've never been able to keep it, and B, the law can't give you a new heart, which you desperately need. And then Stephen ends that long sermon with this rousing word of encouragement, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. <coughs> so, all right, stiff neck. That's a Jewish metaphor for somebody that hardens their heart against God. I, I think I've told you this story before, but I was at a church leader gathering where um, there was a guy speaking who uh, they, they worship, I guess, a little differently than we do. You get a little, you know, they kind of probably have running lanes built around the church and, you know, things will swing on. And, uh, and so at the end of his talk, he said, I want every church leader to come up here because I'm going to pray for you. And uh, so I, you know, I'm a church leader, so I walked up there and I was about, you know, I noticed him praying down the line and I noticed that everybody he prayed for would collapse on the floor. And he was coming toward me. Now, I grew up in a little conservative Baptist church and so we don't, we don't play like that. So he's coming to me and I was like, uh, I, I said this to God, I'm like, God, if you want to knock me on my back, knock my shirt off and tattoo Jesus loves me on my chest, I will gladly receive it. I will, but I'm not letting that man push me down. All right. And so he comes, goes to me, he prayed, grabs my head, starts praying over me, starts praying. He gets a little more intense, and I can feel his hand pushing me backwards. Kind of like, bro, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's you, all right? <laughs> and so he's pushing, and so I start pushing back. I start, you know, I start pushing back, and we, we just got this, this little moment. And for about 20 seconds, we just kind of had this, you know, and he just keeps praying louder, and then he you know, walks, moves to the next person. And I heard him, I think, muttering something about me being stiff-necked, you know, like, like I'm resisting. But see, I'm stiffening my neck because I'm resisting when he's trying to push on to me. And he, what Stephen is saying is that's how you've been toward God, Israel. You've always resisted. You stiffen your neck at what God was trying to do with you. Uh, uncircumcised, that's kind of a vulgar statement, isn't it? When you say that about somebody's heart or their spirit, you're uncircumcised in heart, like your fathers did, that's what you do. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and you never kept it. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. That's basically how he ended that. <laughs> now, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they gnashed their teeth at him. What was that like? <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but you get the image. They're pretty, they're pretty ticked off. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here again, we see this theme of priests emerge. 
Because in Israel, the priests were the only ones who were allowed to go into the presence of God and only once a year. And now here is Stephen, not a priest, not an apostle, not a church leader, a regular guy who has direct access into the presence of God. That which was reserved for a special class of people in the Old Testament priest has now become standard fare for every believer in the new. That which was the responsibility of priest in the Old Testament, which was taking care of the poor, has become the responsibility of every believer in Christ in the new. That which was called priest in the Old Testament has been transferred onto the church in totality in the new. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's a strange little detail, is it not? This is where they drop their clothes off. We'll see this young man that they laid their clothes down at his feet, their coats, to stone him. Saul is going to undergo his own conversion in a couple of chapters. And God is going to change his name to Paul. And one of the biggest influences on this young man, Saul, to win him to Christ is watching Stephen get martyred. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There are five lessons that we can learn from the life of Stephen. Here they are. Number one, the core of Christian commitment is service. Five lessons that you can learn from the profile of the ordinary Christian. Number one, the core of Christian commitment is service. Stephen is introduced to us as a servant. His job was not glorious. He waited tables for widows. He obviously was a capable leader, a gifted theologian, and a good preacher. But he did not say in Acts 6-1, well, I'm going to need something a little bit more in line with my gifts and my passions. No. He said, it's not about me. And if this is how I can serve the body of Christ best, I gladly will do it. And that service, though it seems insignificant to you and me, had a huge effect on the church, not only... Did it preserve church unity at a time when the church was threatened to be torn apart? It also led to the conversion of some of the chief antagonists to the church, the priest, and would lead to the conversion of the chief persecutor of the church, which was Saul. It's probably why Francis Schaeffer said, love on display is the church's most effective apologetic. Apologetic just means defense of the faith. Love on display is the church's most effective apologetic. That is why, Summit Church, our desire at this church is to be a place that is characterized by its service. More important to me than this being a place characterized by its great music or its preaching is that we be known in our community as a place that washes the feet of everybody. That's why, because I know that in our community, that has the more powerful, apologetic um, persuasion than even me standing up here preaching sermons that prove beyond any shadow of the doubt that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if I could commend you for just a minute, that really is true of you. And it plays out. I, I was talking to some of our campus pastors this week, and one of them shared a story with me. He said, he said um, there was a family of six um, that was loosely connected to our church. 
Um, they'd been a couple times. Well, something bad financial happened in, their, in their, uh, their life, and they lost their home back in November. Well, another Summit family um, knew about this, and they said, hey, we're going to get, we got two or three families together. We're, we, we get, we're getting you a place to live. They moved them in the week before Christmas. This campus pastor said what was most impressive is, A, I had nothing to do with it. I just kind of watched it all unfolding as regular people were taking care of this. When they moved them in, they already had it decorated for Christmas and presents bought for all the kids under the tree. See, that's the kind of service that gets the attention of people in the community. Um, I, I was talking to um, another campus pastor who said, yeah, he said, this has happened at our um, campus. There's a, a family who has gotten involved mentoring a girl through our unwed mother's ministry. And uh, this girl had gotten pregnant. She's a teenager, pregnant out of wedlock, obviously. Um, and she was going to have an abortion. Well, they talked her out of having the abortion. When she made that decision, the family that she you know, was part of, her biological family, kicked her out of the house because they wanted her to have the abortion. So they took her in, and they have been not only teaching her how to be a, a mother, but helping her get established financially so where she's going to be able to, to take care of this child and to start a, a new life. What was awesome is, as I was hearing these stories, because I, I was talking with all the campus pastors, a bunch of them just started jumping in, like, yeah, this one and that one. And finally, I was like, okay, I can't, I can't tell that many stories. I had like six or seven written down. Um, this happens repeatedly at our church, and I love it. I love it because it is how God uses us to show the love of Christ to our community. We want the people to feel that same spirit of service the moment they step foot on any of our church campuses. It's why, you know, we tell people that um, uh, the, like, the way we serve people when they come, they, they come to church here. Um, there's a, a, a George Barna, who's a church researcher, did this study. Um, 70% of new people coming to a church decide within the first seven minutes of being on a church campus whether they're going to come back. Seven minutes. That's a long time before I get up here. That's a long time before the, 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 the music starts. That's why we always say the sermon starts in a parking lot. The sermon starts as we're receiving their children and taking them in. It's why we want everything we do to say you are loved, you are honored. God cares about you and you are important. Two of our speakers at the Gospel and Work Conference this past weekend, he said, listen, I just want to tell you, he says, your people, your team is fantastic. I've never been taken care of this well at anywhere I went the way that they cared for me. We lo I love that. We want that spirit of service to overflow into the streets just like it did here in Acts 6. One of the fiercest persecutors of early Christians, the Roman emperor Julian in the second century, whom the church affectionately called um, Julian the Apostate, admitted in disgust in a letter, a very famous letter, he was explaining to a friend that they couldn't stop the church from growing. And here's how he said it. He said, these infernal Galileans, like Jesus of Galilee, these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. That's why we can't stop it from growing. Um, Eberhard Arnold, the historian, says, most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the churches. Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions spent in their temples. Recently, I um, met with a very well-known cultural leader in the triangle, whose name I will not tell you, um, but let's just suffice it to say she is very antagonistic toward our church. She accuses us of hating women and not caring about the poor and being bigoted and any number of things. So I'm talking with her, and I notice that she has this different spirit about her as I'm talking to her, and so I was pressing her a little bit, and it, she finally admits, she said, well, my neighbor is a single mom, 
and she is got falling really hard times and somebody from your church knew her and she said the way that they came in and took care of her and ministered to her needs she said i'm thinking that i might need to tone down my rhetoric a little bit and i said i think you probably might um so you see that's how that's how people like that end up becoming their hearts get warm to what jesus is doing here his reality everyone in this church should serve you say well how do i know exactly where to serve Here's a little grid that I use that I would commend to you. Um, Any one of these three places is where you should serve. A place of skill, a place of passion, or a place of need. A place of skill, a place of passion, or a place of great need. They might all three come together in one, or they might not. So let me comment on that last one for a minute. A place of great need, because, because, because I'm not sure, listen, that waiting tables for widows was a passion or a skill for Stephen. And the reason I say that is because we have a lot of you around here who do serve, but we got a whole nother group of you who don't do anything in our church because you're like, well, it's beneath me and it's inconvenient. I don't think my talents and my teaching ability and my business skill and my general awesomeness are being recognized in this church. And so I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking care of kids. And I'm not standing in the parking lot. And in fact, you don't recognize how awesome I am and give me a job. It's important. I'm going to another church. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, this is probably below Stephen waiting tables for widows. He didn't do it because it was a place of skill or passion. He did it because that was the need was, and he was a servant. I can assure you that washing feet was below Jesus's pay grade, right? He didn't do that because it was a place. Nobody's got a passion for feet. Oh, I just never feel so alive when I'm washing feet. I mean, nobody (laughs) says that. He did it because he was a servant. And you ought to make room in your life, particularly here in the church, to do things that you don't necessarily thrill to do so that you maintain the role of servant. That's why I love pulling into our parking lot on Sunday and being greeted by guys with PhDs in orange vests. Why? Because that's their way of washing feet. And we give you chances to do that. All right? That, by the way, that applies to me too. What I do up here is supposed to be an act of service, not self-exaltation. It's like I pointed out to you, the apostles were servants before they were leaders. So when they quit waiting tables, it wasn't because they were too important to serve. They just found a greater need for their service. One of the things that I pray that I always will be true about how I think about my preaching is that I'll think of it as an act of service. The reason I say that is because it seems like a lot of pastors seem to lose sight of the fact, lose sight of the fact that when they're preaching, they're supposed to be serving their congregation. They're supposed to be washing the feet of their congregation with the word, not exalting themselves. And I feel like I see a lot of guys lose sight of that. And I feel like you can start to tell that in their preaching and just their general disposition. And so I'll tell you, you can pray for me on that because I deal with that. Because you know, when you get up here and you, and you become a leader, you, you, it's just easy for Satan to fill your heart with things that would end up destroying the church. And I never want to get beyond the fact that what I'm supposed to be doing up here is just washing your feet. And this is the most effective way that I can do it, which leads me to number two. Nothing is more important than the Word of God. That's the second lesson you can learn from Stephen. Nothing's more important than the Word of God. For the apostles to have filled up their schedules, even with something important like taking care of widows, would have been a disservice to the church because the church's greatest need is the Word of God. It's kind of like if you were an EMT and you went into a place where there'd been an earthquake and there were piles of rubble everywhere and some people holding on, you know, for dear life, you know, they, they, they were about to die. As an EMT, you go in and start to clean up some of the rubble Oh, that seems like a a nice thing to do, but it's actually disservice because you're one of the only people that can save the people's lives. 
Those people who are skilled at teaching and leading in the word of God, that is the act of service they can provide. And for the apostles to have gotten filled up with doing something else would have been an act of disservice to the church. One of the things that I've most appreciated about this church from the time that I started here, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, was that they always said, we will make your schedule so that you can give attention to preparing yourself to teach the word of God. I've always appreciated that about this church. Stephen was one of the first guys to make that happen. By the way, Stephen's about to preach the longest sermon in the book of Acts, like I told you, that's filled with biblical knowledge. Where do you think he got that biblical knowledge? He got it from here in the apostles' teach. So see, watch this. He devoted himself to the word in two ways. First, he freed up the apostles to be able to teach it. Second, he prioritized learning it. It's not enough for you to free me up to teach the word. You got to prioritize learning it because like Stephen, you're going to be called upon to give answers in places where I'm not going to be present. And you're not going to have, be able to call me up on the cell phone and be like, answer this guy's question. I'm not going to be in your college classroom when your professor is saying what they're saying. I'm not going to be, you can't start podcasting me at that moment. You got to be ready like Stephen was to be able to answer. And in order to do that, you got to know the word of God. So thank you for freeing me up to teach it to you. Now learn it. Learn it. Listen to it. Get into it. Memorize it. Because here's what I found. The Holy Spirit's awesome. He can bring all kinds of things to your memory. But he cannot bring to your memory what you have not put in there to begin with. He cannot fire bullets from your arsenal that you haven't previously stocked. Charles Spurgeon, who I quote up here like every other week, right? Charles Spurgeon was converted as a teenager through the preaching of a layman who had to preach one, one Sunday morning because the preacher was snowed in. And Charles Spurgeon stumbled into the back of a church, and basically they kind of looked at the congregation and said, well, the pastor's not here. Why don't you come up and preach? God walks up, grabs a Bible, starts preaching. What if that had been you? Charles Spurgeon, would he have been converted that morning? Would he have been like, I just don't understand it really. Any, I, just, you know, I just know how to consume and listen. you got to prioritize learning it. Number three. God does his greatest work through ordinary people. That's what you learn from Stephen. God does his greatest work through ordinary people. Already pointed out, he preaches the longest sermon, most biblical sermon. It also has the most famous convert. Hey, listen, read the book of Acts. I don't see anywhere else that anybody's preaching has this powerful of an effect on anybody. I mean, even Paul, the great preacher himself, the closest I could find was a guy named Felix says, almost you persuade me to be a Christian, um, Paul. Stephen preaches, and God uses it to change the Apostle Paul's heart. Why do you think the Holy Spirit showed us this? I'll tell you why. Listen, because he's wanting you to see, listen, that through the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that an apostle does that a layperson cannot do as well or better. In fact, sometimes God delights to put the power on the layperson because the professional ends up taking credit for it. And so what God does, he puts the Holy Spirit onto the heads of ordinary people, into the mouths of ordinary people, and he uses you to preach the most powerful sermons. I should not be the most powerful preacher at this church. You should be, and it should not be in the church. It should be outside the church. In fact, it reminds me of what Jesus said that I pointed this out to you before. It's one of the most amazing promises Jesus made or statements. John 16, verse 7. Jesus said, if you understood who I was, you'd be glad that I was going back to the Father. Because it is to your advantage, he said to the disciples, that I go away, because if I go away, then I'll send the Holy Spirit. And I've told you, could you think for a minute about the absurdity of that statement on the surface? It's to my advantage that Jesus go away? What would it be like to walk around with Jesus for three years? 
I mean, imagine in your life if you got a chance to walk around with Jesus, right? You're at a party and you run out of checks mix. Bam, he multiplies the checks mix. You got a theological question. Bam, he answers it. You got a headache. Bam, he takes it away. Your dog dies. Bam, he resurrects it back to life, right? Your cat dies. He helps you dig a hole to bury that cat, right? Because you know how he feels about cats. All right, so maybe, maybe that's not exactly what it would be like, but, but how awesome would it be to have Jesus as your companion for three years? I mean, imagine if, imagine if I got up here and said, hey, good news, we're opening up a new campus. It's going to be in Holly Springs. Yay, you know, even better news. A guy applied to be campus pastor, and it was Jesus. He's going to be the campus pastor of the Holly Springs campus. Now, that'd be pretty awesome, right? But Jesus said it actually would be better if ordinary believers were filled with the Holy Spirit than if even I myself stayed personally. How we've built our churches and the temptation of this church is kind of turns that on its head. Because we think of a church as a group of people gathered in one place to kind of bask in the anointing, to share in the gifting of a few anointed individuals. When the real power of the church is not in gathering to listen to one anointed guy preach the word, the real power of the church is when ordinary people filled with the Spirit preach the word of God in places like Stephen did. That's where the greatest miracles happen. The greatest miracles are not supposed to happen through me and here. They're supposed to happen with you out there. Number four, Christians are a befuddling contradiction to the world. We don't use the word befuddling enough, so I'm bringing it back. Stephen's life is a contradiction to everybody, isn't it? I mean, on one hand, he's so kind and gracious and servant-like that he wins the heart of antagonistic priests. Yet his rebuke is so stinging that it makes another group of religious leaders want to murder him. Stephen looks at people and he says, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit just like your parents did. And then as they're stoning him, he says, God, don't charge them with this sin. They don't know what they're doing. You see, Stephen is speaking with this curious mixture that characterizes, listen, every true gospel-centered Christian, grace and truth. And the world wants us to be one or the other. They don't like them both. I'm going to tell you that. They hate both of them put together. They hate it worse than if you just had one. Because truth without grace is fundamentalism, and it's easy to write off. Grace without truth is sentimentality and doesn't change anybody. You speak with truth and grace, you're going to be stoned or you're going to be crucified. Just like Stephen. That's what Dr. Moeller was pointing out to us last week. You want the world's approval? You want it? You're never going to get it if you follow Jesus. And if you're waiting for your professor to say, you know, you're actually a pretty good person. You're actually really smart. If you're waiting for people where you work with to praise you without qualification, they're not going to do it. CNN's not going to give you that praise. They're going to call you arrogant and hateful and bigoted. And by the way, you should always examine your heart to see if some of those things are true. But you're going to love them, and you're going to return good for evil, and you're going to serve them, and you're going to refuse to be bitter at them, and you're going to refuse to fight back, and you're going to pray to God for their forgiveness. And some of them, some, not many, some of them, like Saul, are going to see the sweetness of your testimony and how you respond to persecution, and they're going to be converted but the rest are going to keep pelting you with stones. And that's not because you did anything wrong. It's just because that's how they've always treated Jesus, and you shouldn't expect better treatment than him. 
when I was in college and I was facing a situation not similar to Stephen and that my life was not threatened, but when I was facing a type of persecution from some religious leaders, one of my mentors said, you cannot fight back, you cannot fight evil with evil. You can never carry the ministry of Christ with the spirit of Satan. And you've got to, I know you're only 21 years old, but you've got to remain sweet. You've got to remain sweet and always give good for evil. Number five, sometimes God's will for us is martyrdom. Sometimes God's will for us <coughs> is martyrdom. Stephen did everything right, and he ended up dead. What happened? Why didn't God bless him and crown him with loving kindness and reward him and grow his ministry and multiply his days? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know it says, verse 58, that they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. I get chills just thinking about this. There was a young man watching. And as every stone smashed into Stephen's face, and as Stephen's body lay mangled in a bloody heap, Saul heard Stephen's pleas for forgiveness for his persecutors. And Saul saw the glory of God reflected in Stephen's eyes. And something happened in Saul's heart he never got over. Stephen's blood soaking into the ground became the seed of the Apostle Paul's faith. Stephen's most effective contribution to the kingdom of God came through his martyrdom, not through his blessing. Paul was converted not by seeing Stephen delivered. Paul was converted by seeing Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, testified to Jesus' glory in the midst of pain. Do you understand that the sermons you preach through your pain are louder than the sermons you can ever preach through your blessings. And I don't say that as some kind of sick psychopath that wants you to be persecuted or wants you to be in pain. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for my wife. I don't want it for my family. I don't want it for you. All right? But you understand that there is an amplification that God can give to your testimony in pain that he just can't give it in blessing. One of our um, Hispanic pastors, Rodel Hernandez, I told you this a few weeks ago that his dad has been diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. They haven't given up hope yet. But, <coughs> excuse me, but prognosis is not looking good. And in many ways, you know, they say he could be on his deathbed. He's been a, Rodel's dad has been a pastor for years. Rodel said it's been amazing that men that my dad has been trying to reach for years are now listening to my dad on his deathbed that would not listen to him when he was a preacher. He said, my dad says the sermons that I'm preaching now for my deathbed are much more effective than ones I ever preached in my church. There is an amplification that God can give to your testimony in the midst of pain that you sometimes can't have in the midst of blessing. Roddale's dad, Stephen, they're united in that they're saying this, it's not about me. I realize it's not about me living or prospering. My life is about one thing, pointing people to Jesus from start to finish. Stephen's life screamed that. It's not about me. It's not about my self-actualization. It's not about me getting the respect I deserve. 
It's about serving and waiting tables. If that's what I got to do because what the church needs, it's not about me and my potential, my actualization. It's about the bride of Christ. It's not about me obtaining blessing and walking in prosperity. It's about directing people's attention toward Jesus. Here's a question. What's it all about for you? Is it all about you? A lot of people come to church that way. Oh, God's like a, a great addition to their life. I mean, he's going to make your family come together. He's going to give you peace and harmony in life. God becomes essentially a divine butler that's going to make everything work for you. But here's how you know it's all about you. You're easily offended in the church that your talents aren't recognized. You're easily offended by what other people say. They don't recognize who you are or, or, or the contributions that you make. You're angry at God that you're not more blessed than you are. That shows you it's all about you. And there will inevitably li be limits to your obedience. You're never going to go the full measure of sacrifice. You're never going to be financially really that sacrificially generous. You're never going to be in a place like where Stephen is because it's all about you. It's not about Jesus. It's about you. It's all about, for some of you, maybe you would say it's all about your family. A lot of people in church are like that. And God is such a help to my family. But here's how you know. Right? The idea of sending your kids out someday to be missionaries, you hate that idea. Because it's not about Jesus, it's about you and your family. Where did Stephen get this kind of courage and selflessness to say it's all about Jesus? Well, when he looked up to heaven, what did he see? He saw Jesus stretching out nail-pierced hands to receive him. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, who had given up his life for Stephen. Jesus had washed the feet of sinners, Stephen's feet. So it just made sense that Stephen would do that for the church. When Stephen prayed, Father, forgive them, where have you heard that before? That's what Jesus prayed from the cross for Stephen. You see, Stephen, watch, is now doing for others what Jesus has done for him. It's like I've often told you, those people who believe and behold the gospel always become like the gospel. Stephen has believed and beheld the glorious face of Jesus. Now he's become just like Jesus. What else did he see? Well, you know, he included an odd little detail when he sees Jesus. And it may not strike you as odd at first, but the detail is, he says, I see Jesus standing. Why is that an odd detail? Because everywhere else Jesus is at the right hand of God, everywhere else he is sitting. The Son of God looked down from heaven and he stood up. And he said, mine. The religious leaders and political leaders are saying, you're a heretic and you're a fool. And Stephen looks up into heaven and sees Jesus say, no, no, no. They call him a heretic and a fool. I call him mine. Earth condemned him. Heaven commended him. Earth rejected him. Heaven received him. And Stephen said, I would rather have that affirmation than the affirmation of all these people around me. And though it looked to everybody else like Stephen's hands, Stephen's life was in the hands of the devil, Stephen saw that his life was actually in the hands of God who's overruling all of this for good. He saw that Jesus standing at the right hand of God was in charge of it all. He had not forgotten. He had not taken a vacation. 
He was not angry at Stephen. He was in charge of every single stone. And Stephen did not know it, but watching him die was the one who had become the greatest evangelist the world would ever know. You who are suffering or are in places that are difficult to obey, you need to see Jesus in the same place. You need to see him standing at the throne of God for you. You need to see that he is in control. And just like he overturned Joseph's evil brother's plans for good, and just like he turned the martyrdom of Stephen into into the, the conversion of the greatest missionary the world would ever know, Paul, he is using your suffering for the same thing. You need to see him standing in love and victory at the right hand of God for you with his arms outstretched. The way we sing it here is we say this, behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. The stones can't hurt me because I'm hid with him, with Christ my Savior and my God. In fact, maybe you ought to jot this down. The degree to which you understand Jesus' love and victory is the degree to which you will be able to endure suffering well. The degree to which you understand Jesus' love and victory is the degree to which you will be able to endure suffering well. Now, one last thing. The name Stephen means crown in Greek. Crown was what they gave, Stephanos, what they gave to overcomers is what they called them. It's what they gave to Olympic athletes when they overcame the competition. Don't miss this. Stephen overcame the world. The crown overcame the world, not by experiencing what we would typically call blessing, but by dying faithful to Jesus with his eyes fixed upon the risen Christ. And God used his death for more than he'd ever dreamed. God saves the world through your suffering well in the midst of death. You want to overcome the world? You want to overcome the world? Serve. Confess that it's not about you and submit to obedience, whatever the cost. Because see, many of you are being called upon by God right now, right now to glorify him in your hour of trial. For some of you, it's a physical or emotional affliction. And you got to pray. You got to say, Jesus, I need to see you standing. I trust you. I can see with the heart of faith. Help me to give glory to you, whatever happens. Some of you are right now in situations where it's costly to obey. There's a man at our gospel and work conference last week named Bob Dahl, who's a rather famous man in the United States in the world of finance. He was CNBC's go-to stock guy. Made millions of dollars, was the guy who was always on TV. In a panel, not our panel, but one just like it, he was asked, have you ever experienced persecution? And Bob Dahl said, well, I wouldn't really call it persecution. The way that, you know, some people experience persecution. He said, but in my job... He says, my bosses have told me I'm not allowed to share my faith. I'm not allowed ever to bring it up on the air at all. He said, and so I'm trying to be faithful to Jesus and trying to honor them. At the same time, I got to do what I have to do. And he said, that's about as close to persecution as I come. His bosses somehow found out about that answer on that panel and fired him. And Bob Dahl said to me last weekend, he said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. He said, because sometimes following Jesus is costly. Sometimes you just have to do that. Maybe it's a 
integrity issue for you at your job. And to walk hand in hand with Jesus is going to cost you, and you got to make a decision whether or not the risen standing Jesus is worth it. Maybe you're in school, and for you to testify to Jesus means that you are going to take ridicule, you are going to take all kinds of persecution, and you've got to see him standing there, and you've got to say his affirmation is much more important than my professors or my friends, because they're going to keep throwing stones at you. They may not be actual stones, they're going to be stones of words, and they're going to hurt, because whoever said that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me had never been insulted because it's going to hurt. And you're going to say, it's okay, because I see him standing there. And I would rather have his approval. For some of you, it's a way that God's going to call you to obey. He's going to send you overseas. He's going to call you to a financial sacrifice. He's going to call you to get involved in a ministry here you're uncomfortable with, and it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Some of you realize if we're obedient to the Great Commission, that we're going to have Stevens in our lives. We're going to have people, maybe some of us, maybe some of our children, who are going to go out and they're not coming back because they're going to die. Austin Stone Community Church, a church just like ours in Austin, Texas, had a guy that went from their church, just like we send people out, that was in Libya and was shot about six weeks ago. I told you about it. And it just made me have a moment of sobriety where I said, this thing is not a game for us because we're sending out people like the video that you saw and they're gonna go and we're gonna pray for their safety but God never promised, Stephen, he never promised any of us that we were coming back alive. And in that moment, we're gonna have to say, is it worth it? And we're gonna have to fix our eyes on Jesus and we're gonna have to say, he's worth it. He's worth going anywhere. He's worth doing anything for and I'll follow him. Have you ever gotten to a place where you say, Jesus, it's not about me, it's about you. I'll do anything, go anywhere, I'll serve, I'll suffer, because it's about you. I would invite you to look into your heart and to pray that prayer, to make sure that you have. Why don't you bow your heads with me, if you would, at all of our campuses. Can you say it to him? Look, bow your heads at all of our campuses and just ask him. Can you say it? Jesus is not about me. It's about you. It's not about me. It's about you. I'll go anywhere, do anything. It's not about me. Don't lie to him, whatever you do. Don't lie to him. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, it is about me, but I don't want it to be, and I need you to help change my heart so that it will be about you. Can you see him standing there, the risen lamb? And can you say with the apostle Paul that I am convinced that if one died for all, that those of us who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Can you let your life go and say, it's not about me, it's about you.